Hi hey guys, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Ravi Zacharias um, situation. Um, as many of you heard, you know, Ravi was doing um, really inappropriate things for many years with massage therapists and things like that and women that weren't his wife and, and all the while he was keeping up a front of, of someone that was really following God and someone that was serving him with all of his heart. And uh, I think it's Second Samuel 1 where David's talking about Saul and he says, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And uh, we've seen many people fall. Uh, we've seen many religious leaders fall and uh, we will continue to see religious leaders fall. And uh, today I, 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 my purpose is really not to talk about Ravi per se, um, but to use uh, his situation as kind of a springboard to talk about uh, some, of the, some of the pitfalls and the dangers of ministry, okay? And um, you know, again, we're, we're not, we are not in any way condoning anything that he did at all. And we fully support um, the people that have come out and, and testified against him. And they should be rewarded. They should be um, held up by the body of Christ. And they should be supported in, in every way that we can. But... Uh, Again, uh, the the thing is, is is we want to talk about what happens in ministry and what can happen in ministry. And I, I'm obviously not saying that this happens all that, you know, to everyone in ministry at all or anything like that. But it is something that has to be guarded against because when you're in ministry, and especially as you get more and more success in ministry, people put you on pedestals. And people begin to actually, in, in some ways, put you in the place of God. There's a story in the Old Testament about Gideon. Um, Gideon was in the book of Judges. Um, he, he was one of the judges that God raised up to, do, to defeat the Amalekites um, that, were, that would come by periodically and plunder Israel and take all their stuff and, and take many of them for slaves and things like that. So God raised up Gideon who defeated them. And um, Gideon took some of their gold and made a breastplate or an ephod out of it. And, uh, you know, several years after, after that happened, people began to worship the breastplate as though it had any power in itself or as though it did anything of itself. It was nothing, right? It was the man that God used. And more specifically, it was God working through that man who gained any kind of a victory. Just like the Ark of the Covenant. People talk about how the Ark of the Covenant had power to do this, the power to do that. And whenever the people would go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, they would defeat their enemies. Well, that's not true, right? Even when, uh, uh, when Saul was killed, they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. Right? So the Ark of the Covenant was nothing but an empty box covered with gold. But God would come down sometimes in his presence and inhabit it. Okay? But the thing is, is there was no substance in that 
right? There was no ability in that box. It was nothing but a box covered with gold. The only time they were able to prevail against their enemies is when God would come down among them and grant them the power and authority. It's even like when, when Peter and John healed healed the guy that was, I think he was lame, and uh, you know he was begging, begging alms from them, and they said, silver or gold we don't have, but what we do have is in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And so, again, it was not that they had any power in themselves, not that they had any authority in themselves, but it was what it was the fact that it was God dwelling in them. And that's the thing that we have to always remember whenever we begin to minister, because, again, people uh, uh, will be will put you on pedestals and people will put you in places that you don't deserve to be. Right. People will put you in places that that is only reserved for God. And uh, and it happens all the time in ministry. Um, I know that there was uh, some statements where where um, where one of the massage uh, therapists was saying that uh, Ravi was telling her um, that uh, that uh, that he he didn't get any fulfillment out of his ministry and out of his marriage. Ravi had an international ministry bringing in millions of dollars a year, and yet he had no satisfaction in that. So this brings up the question, why was he ministering? And it's a good question for each one of us also. Why are we ministering? Right? Because the Bible says that God searches the hearts and the motives, right? God's not concerned in just what we do, what we don't do. He's concerned with our heart and our motives behind it. I remember at uh, Christmas this past year, we were talking to someone and they're like, well, um, yeah, our pastor came uh, came up and said, uh, we want to raise a million dollars and stuff. And, you know, and they were telling me about how the people gave this millions of dollars and and stuff and it it was it was a mega church that waters down the word of god that doesn't that that just you know it's a people seeker people friendly church and they just you know they don't tell anyone that they have to change they don't tell anyone that they have to repent of their sins just come on in just come on in give your money and god's going to bless you god's going to be with you god and the thing is, is it doesn't matter. The church is giving more money now than it ever has in the history of of the church. And we're doing less with it than we ever had in the history of the church. But we, we like to brag about what we do. We like to brag about the things that we're doing in the name of God. And you hear it every Sunday. You go to churches and we brag about the things that we're doing. We brag about the people that we led to the Lord. We brag about the people that, that we baptize. And we say, well, you know, and it's not for, you know, it's not for our glory. It's all for God. But you can tell by looking at it that, well, you're getting a lot of glory out of it too, Right? And so the thing is, is again, especially if you're thinking about going into ministry, you really, really need to um, sit down and examine your heart and ask yourself, why are you going into ministry? And the thing is, is, is we, we, it, it starts from our very infanthood as believers. We're told, well, you know, you need to go into all the world and preach the gospel and, and, in uh, Mark 16, verse 15, it says, go into all creation and preach the gospel to all creation and stuff. And so 
For 2,000 years, we've been saying that. You need to go into all creation. You need to go out, preach, uh, you know, preach the gospel. You need to be missionaries overseas. I remember, like, uh, I just saw a uh, memorial service for Keith Green, who, who died in 1982, I think it was. But, uh, you know, he's like, basically, if you, God has called every single one of us to go. To go out into the world. He says in Mark 16, go. Well, look at Matthew um, Matthew 28. Because that's just one part of it, okay? In Matthew 28. In the same conversation, Jesus said. Um, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So again, we get this focus on going. Jesus, I think his focus was on making disciples, number one. Okay? And we have to look at the times. We have to look at what was going on. When when Jesus told his disciples to go out into all the world, all the disciples were in Jerusalem. They were in one city, in one nation, in one part of the world. And so the gospel was in Jerusalem. And that's the only place in the world where the gospel was. And so when he told them to go, he was telling them to spread it out. Get it out there. Now, 2,000 years later, the gospel is essentially in every nation. Right? And I'm not saying that God hasn't called you or he has called you. Maybe he has called you be, to be a missionary. He does do that, right? But, you know, I, I remember reading a story about Samuel Morris. I think it was in the 1700s. An African came to America to be a missionary to America. And I don't know about you, but America needs the gospel. America is as lost as any other nation on earth. I don't care if we say we are uh, a nation under God and our, our money says in God we trust. We are as lost, if not more lost, than most of the nations in the world. Right? And so I think that now, 2,000 years later, we have already gone out. Right? And so now I think our focus needs to be on making disciples, not making converts, not trying to fill our churches to mega church status and, and get bigger and better and larger tithes and offerings. But it is to make disciples, to ground one another in the word of God. The fivefold ministry, what, what was the purpose of it? To, to bring us all into maturity of the gospel. And the problem is, and that's why the church, and that's why so many Christians are so immature, is because we're trying to get converts. And we're trying to say, well, my church has... 500 people or my church has a thousand people or my church has 50 and believe me i've been to i've been to pastors meetings where it's like how many people did you have this past sunday oh how many people did you have and it's all about numbers it's all about tithe it's all about offerings it's like my church is bigger than your church we we built this brand new building look at us and again we say it's for god's glory but how good does it make us look right um, what if you're called to be where you're at? 
right? What if you're called to be in the job that you are? I know so many Christians, they get saved and they're like, well, I can't work at this job anymore. God's called me to preach or God's called me to do this or God's called me to do that. They have no training. They have no experience. They have no abilities. They're just going to run out and do what God has called them to do. And now, and the thing is, is again, maybe God has called them to do it, but God wants us to get some training under our belt, right? He wants us to get some maturity under our belt. And the, the problem is, is a lot of us are teaching and, and going out and doing things, and we don't even have any sort of training. We don't know the Bible. We don't know anything about how to lead people to Christ or anything like that. So, <clears throat> you know, the Bible says um, um, that, um, ah, I can't think of the scripture, but it says, let those who win souls must be wise or something like that. Um, I can't think of the exact reference, but the thing about it is, is we, you know, the disciples sat under Jesus teaching for three and a half years before they went out into all the world. Right. And, and what happens is we get, we get saved as new believers and, and we think we're supposed to run out immediately. And we go to conferences and, and the conferences are like, uh, you know, we're told God loves you and he has this amazing plan for your life. He has this destiny for you. You need to go out and, and we go to these spiritual gifts conferences and, and we try to find out what's our gifts, what's our callings. Am I, a, am I a prophet? Am I apostle? Am I a teacher? Am I an evangelist? What, what is, what is my calling? Well, you know, there are other callings too. There are other giftings such as, uh, you know, the gifts of, 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 of um, hospitality. You know, the gifts of, of just loving one another. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. The gift of encouraging people. And, and the thing is, is we don't want those gifts because those gifts don't shine. Those gifts don't glow in the dark. Those gifts don't make me look like I'm somebody, right? And I'm going to be somebody for Jesus. And we have all these teachings. What are you doing for God? What have you done for God? What are you doing? You know? And the thing is, is, you know, and, and, and people will spend thousands of dollars going to conferences on learning how to prophesy, learning how to heal people. Turn to Acts chapter 8. I, I know of this one conference where people pay $5,000 where they're taught for... I don't know how many days it is, but they're taught how to prophesy and how to speak what God's speaking to other people and stuff like that. $5,000. And I'm sure that there's some that are a lot more than that. And uh, in Acts chapter 8, if I can find it. In verse, uh, verse 1. Now this is this is after the after Pentecost and after after Stephen had just been killed with Saul standing around watching it and Saul's going out and trying to find other Christians to put to death. And in verse 1 it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him Stephen to death and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scared. And again, think of it in the context of what we're talking about. 
it's so easy for us to minister, right? It's so easy for us to minister, especially in America, especially in the church and stuff. It's easy for us to become pastors. It's easy for us to become teachers. It's easy for us to lead Bible studies. It's easy, easy for us to, to, to do all these things. But what if, like, you knew that if I do this Bible study in my house, there's this person who's looking for people that are doing that to put them to death, or if I become a pastor of this church, there's this person, and not only this person, but a group of people, there are lots of people who are looking to put people that do that to death. Would you still do it? All right. Verse 1, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming, proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. There, so there was much rejoicing in their, that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So let's look at Simon. Now, number one, he's doing magic. He's doing all these astonishing people, and he's claiming that he's someone great. Now, honestly, I see this a lot in a lot of churches, right? Look at me. Look at all the things I do. Oh, it's all for God's glory. It's all for God's glory. Look at this video of me doing these things. What's, why do people have to have um, videographers following them while they go out and do things? Right? And I'm, I'm not saying all of that's bad. Okay? But I'm saying look at where the focus is. You can say all day long, I'm doing this for the glory of God. But you're, when you're saying, look what I did. Look how I did this. Look what I did there. Look what I did over here. Look how God used me here. Look at me. Look at me. And you can see where the focus is. It says, verse 10, And they were all, from smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to this man, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, in other words, when the focus got off of him, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and were being baptized, men and women alike, even Simon himself believed, so it says he believed, he was a believer, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Look at this in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now what does this again say about conferences where we charge money where we charge people bukus of money, where we charge people lots of money so that they can learn the gift of God. Number one, 
what does it say about the people who are paying that money? And number two, what does it say about the people who are selling it to them? Jesus whipped out the money changers from the temple. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. Is this any different? Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be, for, may be forgiven you. You see that? So this is the Bible. This is, this is, you know, and again, this happens all over in the church. There are conferences everywhere that you go, go and pay the people, you know, and, and you want to get the gift of God. You want to learn how to heal people. You want to learn how to cast out demons. You want to, you know what? The, the disciples, Paul was a tent maker. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, how Paul did not charge people for the gospel. I know of other other people like Keith Green. Again, I, it seems like we're talking about him a lot today. But Keith Green, he never charged money for his concerts. He didn't charge for, for his albums. He said, whatever you can afford, just give that and things. And because he did not want to charge people for the gospel. Now, it's one thing if people will support you. It's another thing if you're charging them for it, right? At least that was his opinion. So, and the thing is, is from spiritual babyhood, we're taught that we're supposed to do great things of God. Uh, and there are aspects of truth to that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I even seen, I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen YouTube videos of these kids in church and they're singing for the Lord and they're praising and everybody's just, oh, clapping their hands and they're like, oh, look at this job and stuff. And they're basically, they're just boosting their ego. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, the story. It's a video that you, you can still find. It's like on Prime Video, but it's called Marjo. And in the 70s, there was this, he was, he was a kid preacher at four years old. His, his parents taught him to be a preacher and how to work the crowds and, and how to get money and stuff like that. And, and basically, it, you know, he got fame and fortune, you know, from being this child preacher with all this charisma and stuff. And again, that's what we as the church, we, we, so often we look at these outward things and, and we, we lift people up on pedestals and we're like, oh, look at this person. Look at what they're doing and stuff. We are all servants of the Lord. Nobody is better than anyone else, right? Nobody is the great man or woman of God and you, else, you other people are just the peasants and the nobodies and stuff. God does not see rank in that way. Well, let me kind of rephrase that. There is rank in God, with God, but it's based on our relationship with him. And we'll talk more about that also. And we see these Hollywood stars. We see um, rap stars. We see sports stars. They get saved and immediately they're given pulpits. All right. Immediately, it's like, oh, well, this famous person has become a Christian now. Let's, you know, he hasn't been a Christian for three months, but let's give him our pulpits and stuff. What does he know? What has he experienced? And again, coming to the child preachers, why would you go and listen to a child who knows nothing? And 
understand me. Jesus can speak to us many times through children. I know that when our children were small, sometimes they would say something that would completely convict you. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm not saying that God can't use children, but but as a general rule, children have no life experiences. And the thing is, is even with believers, you know, new Christians that get saved and they're full of zeal and full of passion to do great things for the Lord. And that's admirable. That's great that they want to do that. But you know what? You need to sit. You need to be patient. Leonard Ravenhill used to say it takes 20 years to make a man of God. And I'm not saying that it's 20 years and if it's been 19, it's not long enough or anything like that. But you know what it is? It's experiences experiences are what make us it's like the iron sharpening iron it's that iron cutting off the rough edges in the the places that are that are uh, you know that need to be sharpened and stuff that's how god makes us god sends us through the through the desert many times he sends us through the refining process to make us into what we're what he wants us to be and the problem is, is that we take people before they've even gone through those processes and we say, yeah, I will listen to you. I will be your disciple. I will let you teach me. And many of those people need to sit in a seat and be taught themselves. Turn to First um, Timothy 3. And the thing is, is when we do that, we clearly ignore Scripture. In First Timothy 3 verse 6. Now he's talking about overseers and deacons, but it applies to any leader in the church because that's what overseers and deacons are, right? In verse 6 he says, uh, let that man not be a new convert so that he or she will not be conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. You see that? Because the thing is, is again, when you take someone that's new, when you take someone that's untested, who hasn't been through the trials and purification of the Lord, they, what happens? They get boasted up in pride, right? And it goes straight to their head. Well, oh, man, I've been a Christian three months and look at me, I'm already preaching. And the thing is, is I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, when I first got saved, I had a lot of things that needed to be dealt with. And the thing is, is, the Bible is very specific on who we listen to. We're not supposed to listen to just anybody, right? The Bible says even when people come to your church and they try to give a prophetic word or whatever and stuff, it says they must be tested first. And so, again, we're, we're not, the, you know, turn to in, in James chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but in three, uh, James chapter 3, verse 1, it says that not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will, teachers will incur stricter judgment. And turn to Matthew chapter 12. And the thing is, is uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still... I've been a Christian for over 30 years, and I'm still learning new things all the time. And I, there's still some things that I learn, and I go, ooh, man, that, that thing that I've been teaching, that's not exactly right, right? And then you have to go, and you have to say, look, man, that, that I, I was wrong about that. But that's the thing is that, you know, the, the nature of walking with God is one based on relationship, 
And it's one based on him teaching us by his Holy Spirit, by other teachers, and by circumstances, his true nature and his true character. And nobody has that immediately. There is a maturing process that every believer has to go through. And in Matthew 12, verse 33... Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For that, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Listen to this, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Do you see that? And I see so much teaching in the church that is not according to the word of God. And again, he says, let not many of you be teachers. Teaching is not something that you just jump in. Teaching is not something that you just got saved and now I'm going to be a teacher or now I'm going to be a prophet. And again, this doesn't apply just to teaching. It's all the gifts. It's all the callings and stuff. These things, Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, you need to count the cost. And we, we're to be careful about the things that we say. We're to be careful about the things that we do. We're to be, you know, the Bible says not even to have an appearance of sin. Because we are representatives of the Lord and we are to represent him correctly to this world. Because just like the cliche goes, some of us are the only Jesus that other people will see. And so when we become Christians, it becomes, we again, we're not just getting saved. We're not getting fire insurance. We're, try, we're not trying to avoid hell. We're not trying to, to save ourselves. We're, we're coming to him in this relationship. Why did God create man? To have relationship with him, right? And so we come to God and we're just, we're like babies. We're like children. We're like little birds. And the mother bird has to come and feed us. And the more, the more we, we, we are fed by the Holy Spirit, the more we grow. The more we grow, the more we're able to teach others. You can't teach something that you don't know, right? And that's why we have to spend time soaking in the Word of God, time praying in the presence of the Lord, getting to know who He is, what He's about, and, and what He wants this world to know. Um, and so it, it says that you'll give an account for every careless word. And, and I, it makes me think about like before the election, what about all these prophecies that Trump was going to prevail? Do you still sit under prophets or teachers, so-called, who said that Trump is going to win? God spoke to me and said Trump is going to win this election. And yet we don't hold any of those people accountable. And for many of us, we still follow them. We still give them their money. Now, and I will give... I will give some allowance to, okay, sometimes you miss it. and sometimes, But to do it constantly... And to do it to such an extent and to do it so flagrantly without coming back and saying, you know what? I was wrong 
and I repent and I'm going to seek God and I'm going to have him speak to me on how I can hear his voice clearer. And I didn't see that happening. And again, all these people get a free pass. And they're allowed to say whatever they want to say. They're going to continue saying what they want to say. They're going to continue doing the things, but they will be held accountable for that. And the thing, the problem is, is when we sit and listen to that, God holds us accountable too. Because we are to be discerning and we are to be wise on what we listen to and we are to take care how we listen to things. And the Bible over and over in the New Testament talks about do not listen to false teachers. Do not listen to them. And yet we still do it. And the problem is, is what we've done is we've created a culture of pride in the church, a culture of arrogance, a culture of entitlement, and a culture of selfish ambition. And again, we, we've got people pastoring churches that go to theological seminaries that don't even have a relationship with God. They're doing it as an occupation because that's what their mom wanted to do or their grandfather was a preacher or, or whatever and stuff. And, you know, they don't know what else to do. So, well, I'll go to, I'll go to a theological school and I'll become a pastor. But they have no relationship with God. Um, I know that one, one of the women that Ravi seduced, he said, he told her that she was his reward for the things that he was doing for God. Again, and I've seen it so many churches, preachers, leaders of churches, leaders of ministries have an entitlement, right? Like even when you meet them, I'm pastor so-and-so, or I'm evangelist so-and-so, I'm prophet so-and-so, and you go, oh, okay, hey, Tim, they give you, no, it's pastor, Tim. Or, you know what I'm saying? And they carry cards with them. They carry business cards with their name, prophet so-and-so on it, that they give out to people. And they want to be known by these titles, by these entitlements. This is who I am. This is, and, and again, you read in the Bible, Paul never called himself the apostle Paul. He said, I am Paul, an apostle. An apostle was just what he did. He was Paul. He wasn't the Apostle Paul. Now, we call him that, but that's not what he called himself, ever. And the thing is, is, you know, we, we put these, and, and we do it too. We put these people in, in, on pedestals, and you can't question them. I have been in churches where you cannot question the pastor, Right? If he teaches something that, that, that you're like, well, I don't know about that, you, you better keep it to yourself because you can't question him, right? Even with Ravi Zacharias, there were people in his ministry. I, I, I know that of this one particular person that tried to tell him, and, and this person didn't even think he was doing the things that he was doing, but this person thought that he should stop doing those things because it, it looked bad. And, and, the, and the people, and it says that the people in the ministry shunned him after that. And they gave him the cold shoulder. And this goes on all the time in churches. You can't speak to the leaders. You have no relationship with them. And again, do not dare question their authority. Right? 
Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and, his, and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. I've been in churches, guys, where the pastor of the church was getting good ties and and a good living and stuff like that. Uh, I, I think uh, one member bought him a boat, someone else helping pay off his house and stuff like that. And that church would do mission trips, right? And he'd say, you need to just believe God to give you the money to, to be able to go on this trip. And of course, for him, it was no problem getting the money to go on the trip. But for people that were in his congregation, they would be looked down on if they weren't able to get the money up to go on the mission trip. You know what I'm saying? Or if they weren't able to live in the kind of house or the kind of lifestyle that he thought that they should live. And again, this is going on in church after church after church. Sometimes it's really overt. Sometimes it's really subtle. He says in verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Look at this in verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. I can't tell you how many banquets I've been to just praising the man of God or the woman of God. Oh, look at their accomplishments. And we'll talk about it, but... I believe in respecting, I believe in, in honoring, I believe in loving people that are over us and, and even submitting to them and, and all that. I believe in all that, but there's a thin line. It says in, in verse 7, And they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Or they love being called prophet so-and-so. Or they love being, even on... Christian radio all the time. I'm pastor so-and-so and we're doing this and we're doing that. And if you like the message by pastor so-and-so, says they love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi. Do not be called prophet. Do not be called evangelist. It's just, and you look at this and some people will go, well, that's the Pharisees. What's the difference? You love the respectful greeting. You love people noticing you for who you are and what you do. Right? It says, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. You're all on the equal plane. Do not call anyone on earth earth your father for one is your father who is in heaven now what he's saying here is he's not saying because i i talked to an unbeliever one time about this and he couldn't wrap his head around it he's not saying don't call your father father right but they would as a sign of respect call the rabbis father you know what i'm saying even like the catholic church does they call their priests father that's what he's talking about. He's not saying don't call your dad dad. Don't call your father father. He's taught he's saying don't call religious leaders, oh my father. This is my father. 
He says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, again, pastor, evangelist, teacher, prophet. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Do you see that? And again, I know so many religious leaders that you can't get close to because they're, they're you know, whoa, whoa. Hey, I'm the holy person. You need to stand back, right? And again, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt. And this is not in every church, obviously, but it's to a very large degree in the Christian church today. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Actually, yeah, while you're going there, in Mark chapter 10, in 1 Timothy 5, it says elders, or again leaders, It says, who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And again, I believe that. I believe in honoring our leaders. A double honor, right? Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, because what is it? It's the preaching of the gospel that saves people, right? And stuff. So, so yes, they're worthy of honor, but I can honor somebody without giving them a title. Because he's just a person. She's just a person, just like I am. And I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be afraid of them. I don't have to kowtow to them. I don't, I don't have to cower before them. They're just a person, just like you are, just like I am, doing what God has called them to do. And they should, every minister should be approachable. Every minister is to be a servant, not a king, not a lord, but a servant. In Mark 10, verse 32. This is uh, right before Jesus' crucifixion, and he's with his disciples, and it says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who... Those who followed were fearful, and again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise from the dead. So think of this. Jesus is, in the last week of his life, last few days of his life and he's telling his disciples that they're about to crucify me they're going to scourge me they're going to whip me they're going to put me to death look what his disciples reaction are. verse 35 James and John and the two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you now stop right there you think that they're going to say to Jesus, Lord, we want, to, we want you to allow us to be with you during this time. We want you to allow us to, to, um, to be with your mom, to, to, to be your support while you go through this, right? But that's not what they do. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? 
Look at this, 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. I mean, Jesus' heart must have been crushed. He's, imagine you're telling your best friends, your inner circle, the people that you're the tightest with, look guys, I'm about to die. People are going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to make fun of me. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to torture me and I'm going to die. And all your friends can say, well, after you die and you're in glory, can, can we, can we sit on thrones right next to you? Jesus is going through the worst time of his entire life, and all they can think about is themselves, their selfish ambition, their pride, their self-exaltation. Jesus said to them, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? In other words, are you willing to die? Are you willing to go to the cross? Are you willing to be mocked? Are you willing to be scourged, to be tortured, to have chunks of your beard ripped out of your face? And again, that's a question for every leader in the body of Christ. It's a question for me. It's a question for every teacher, every prophet, pastor, evangelist, teacher, preacher. Are you willing to drink that cup? We have it so easy in America, in third world countries, in other countries, in places in Africa, people die. In Muslim countries, people die for the, for the benefit of being a pastor or, a, or an evangelist or a prophet. Some of them don't even get paid. They don't have fancy churches. They don't have with... with um, places to live in them. They don't get a. They don't get an allowance for vehicles. They don't have jets. They get nothing out of it. The people are too poor to pay them anything. But they do it because they love God and they love the people. Would you do that? Would you do it if you didn't get paid? Verse 40, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine again, but is for those who has been prepared. Verse 41, hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. <laughs> Look at these guys. But why are they indignant? Because they wanted the same thing. They just didn't have the guts to say it, right? Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. And again, there are so many churches where the pastors are lords. It says, But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. This is Jesus' way to do it. If you want to be great in the kingdom, if you want to be somebody, serve. Lower yourself. Get away from your pride. Get away from your ambitions. Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to because you're just a man. And as a man, you can fall. As a woman, you can fall. 
be humble and sit at the feet of Jesus. It says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Turn to John chapter 13. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter and he said to them, Lord, will you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do now, you, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter, and again, <laughs> so funny, we always try to tell Jesus what to do, right? No, no, this is the way it's got to be, God. No, no, this is the way you need to do it, right? Instead of realizing we're just the servants. He is God. We're the servants. We do what he says. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Now again, foot washing was for the lowest servant in the house. It was for the slaves to do, right? Basically, you'd come into the house, your servant, your slave would wash your feet. If you're the person washing the feet, you're the lowest scum in the house. And Jesus says that we as believers, and especially the leaders, are to be the ones who wash the feet. He said, I then, verse 14, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet. You are also, you are, sorry, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So again, that's what Jesus calls us to. And again, turn to Luke chapter 10. What's your motivation? Why do we minister? Do you do it for glory? Do you do it for fame? Because so many people, so much, I mean, like... So many people want to be known as this great man, as this great woman who does these great things for the Lord. What if you never become famous? What if God keeps you in secret? What if, 
What if you minister to five people and that's all you minister to? Or what if you lead someone to the Lord here and there and, you know, and you, you never even know them? You, you know, you share the gospel with people and, and people reject and people reject and people reject and you get to heaven, you find out, man, there were some people that actually, that, that, that turned, that, that, that believed. And that's your reward. I'm telling you, all these preachers, all these, all these leaders that are living like lords on this earth with their mansions and their jets and their cars and their... All these things, they've received their reward in full. And when they get to heaven, they're going to be bankrupt. And some of you that are just quietly serving, just loving God and just doing your thing, and you think nobody knows, nobody recognizes, nobody sees, but God does see. And He will reward you. And He is pleased with that. Luke 10, verse 38. Now, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Now, there is so much in that one verse. Number one, women didn't sit at the feet of the rabbis in those days. Matter of fact, still they don't. In Judaism, women are still second class. Jesus exalted women. But anyway, she was seated at his feet listening to his word. She, Mar Mary was sitting and learning from Jesus, soaking it up, listening to everything that he had to say. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And tell her to help me. And again, what Martha was doing wasn't a bad thing, right? People need to eat. Jesus and them had been probably working really hard and traveling all day long and, and really tired and weary and hungry and things like that. And, and so what Martha was doing wasn't a bad thing, right? I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing the Lord's work. It says, but the Lord in verse 41 answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are so worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is really necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. And that's the thing. So much ministry is people bustling about. People running around, trying to do things, trying to make sure that they're doing, working for the Lord. Trying to make sure that they're, you know, it's like, we got to do, we got to do. We're told to go out and preach. We're told to go into all the nations. We're told to do this. We're told to do that, you know, and stuff. And, and so much ministry is so ineffective because ministry can only ever truly flow from those who sit at the feet of Jesus. Even the disciples. The disciples never went out to minister. Well, they did when Jesus sent them out, but... But on a large scale, they never went out to minister until after having sat at Jesus' feet for three and a half years. Um, turn to Acts 4. Look at this verse in Acts chapter 4. 
verse 13. So this is after Pentecost. Um, this is when uh, Peter and John and the disciples started just going out and preaching and, and sharing Jesus with everyone. And this is uh, verse 13. It says, Now as they observed the confidence, this is the Pharisees and the people and stuff that were watching him, uh, when they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Again, the thing in the church now is you've got to go, you've got to go to college, you got to get that degree. All right? And you can't be a preacher, you can't be an evangelist, pastor, well, you can't be these things unless you have this degree from this college that says, oh, we've given the stamp and the seal of approval, now you can go out and preach. And so many of us in the church is like, I, I, honestly, I, I've, I've, I've been, te I've been in places where I've, I was teaching or preaching and stuff, and they're like, well, where did you go to school? You know, and it's like, okay, well, if you didn't go to school, you're disqualified. Now, again, we do have to be trained, and believe me, I've, I've sat under lots of teaching, and I've read the Bible through over and over and over. I've read book after book after book, and I'm not boasting on myself or saying that I'm something that I'm not. I'm just saying that I have learned things. I've been to teaching schools, not college per se, not, not you know, but I've sat under tons and tons of teaching. But the fact of the matter is, is the disciples, they didn't go to seminary. And I'm saying, if God has called you to do that, then go for it, right? But God doesn't call everyone to do that. And if you know God, he can use you. Verse 13 again. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated un and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize this. Listen to this. Began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So the main stamp, the main seal of approval for these disciples was that they had been with Jesus and that they had spent time in his presence. And from that, flowed their ministries from that that's where you know that's what gave them the anointing and the power to change people's lives because they had been with Jesus and so again what you know what what if why are you doing it why are you ministering you know is it because people pay you again people do this as a commission people do this to because they get paid to do it because they get offerings or you know people go to school to do this so that they can make a living and so what if you didn't get paid paul was a tent maker and he made tents by his own hand because he didn't want to be a burden to people, because he didn't want to take tithes from people, because he didn't want to take offerings from people, because he didn't want to burden people. He said, I will work by my own hands and do that. What about you? What if, what if you were in a place, what if you were in a third world country where they could not pay you, where they could not give you tithes, where they could not support you? Would you still do it? Why are you doing it to get paid? There's this, uh, there's this church that I know of in, in um, Colorado. It's called River of Life Fellowship. Um, and if you go to their website, 
it talks about how they don't pay any of their pastors. All of their pastors work full-time jobs and they don't get paid to preach. And I love that. Because again, they're not doing it for the money. And you look at some, again, these preachers that live in these mansions and have, you know, two or three mansions and stuff like that. They've received their payment in full. And they will get no more. Again, you know, and, and by the way, just just so we can be clear about this, greed and the love of this world are also sins. I know we like to talk about sins, you know, homosexuality. We like to sin in the, talk about the sins of adultery and things like that. But these are sins that, in these churches anyway, they'll never talk about. But God sees. God knows. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Because... Again, there there are so many people, it's like, well, God has called me to do this, so so I don't need to work at my job and stuff like that, and I, I don't need to, and it's like, well, my job is not my calling, so I don't have to take it seriously. I don't have to work hard at my job and, and stuff. You know, I minister on the side, and that's my calling and stuff, but I can be late to work, or when I get to work, I can just be haphazard. I don't really have to work hard. I, you know, I can I can sit around and talk all day and stuff like that, and I, you know, I don't really have to do anything at work. In Ephesians 6, verse 5, it says, Slaves, which for us today would be workers, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart so as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God, where? From your heart. With good will render service to the Lord as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one of you does, he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. So again, there are many of us who who can't just be supported by tithes or offerings or whatever, who have to work, but, you know, you can still minister on the side. But, okay, if that's what God has called you to, our, our works are representative of Christ, right? When we go to our jobs, we should be always on time. We should, we, I, I know people that where I work, they come into work and they got to stretch and limber up for 10 minutes and stuff. Once you punch that clock, you should go in there ready to work. And your work should be, when I go to work, I don't go to talk. I don't go to just hang out and stuff. I go to do my work and, and work as pleasing to God and to do a good job so that my work is a reflection of Christianity and Christians. So many employers have a bad, such a bad taste in their mouths because of their employees. It's like, well, that guy, you know, yeah, he calls himself a Christian, but really, he doesn't work. He doesn't, you know, he, when I try to tell him something, he just argues with me. You know, he's late most of the time. He, he you know, his, his work is sloppy and he just stands around and drinks coffee all day. Everything that we do should be a reflection of of Christ, right? And what if no one thanks you? What if no one was to give you any kind of thanks, any kind of acclaim, no pastor's appreciation, coffee mug? And here's a bigger question. What if God were to shut your ministry down? 
They say that John the Baptist's ministry lasted for six months, and then it was over with. But Jesus said of him, he's the greatest man to ever preach the gospel. And that's the thing. We, you know, what, what if God gave you a ministry? What if everything's going great and, and, all, and everything's wonderful and all of a sudden God takes it away? Because I know of so many ministers who, you know, if, if, if that were to happen, they just turn away from following God. Well, if that's the way God's going to be, and that shows your heart, right? It shows that were you truly in it for God? Or we, and again, do we serve God for what we get out of it? Or do we serve it him for what we can give to him? And that is really in a nutshell what it comes down to. Why are we ministering for what we can get out of it? For my acclaim, for my self-glory, so that people can look at me and go, man, that person is awesome. Right? And I confess, when I was a young believer, I wanted to be somebody for God. And I wanted to build huge churches and and, and and my motives were right. You know, I wanted to see multitudes of people get saved. But so much in the body of Christ, so much has been done by people who are unknown. There are people in the Bible, and, and one of these days I want to preach a message on the people in the Bible who were the unknowns that God used. People who are nameless that God used. And what if you're one of those people? What if God has called you just to be nameless, to be nobody, to be nothing where, you know, people don't even know about? And the revival in Wales is talking about, like, or I think it was the Hebrides revival. Like, it started because two invalid sisters, they couldn't leave their house. I think one of them was blind and the other was, you know, bedridden or something like that and so all they did all the time was just simply pray to God and cry out for God to move among them would you be happy with that would you be happy if and that's the thing so many of us when we ever whenever we do something for God we oh, we got to make sure somebody notices it right we got to make sure somebody goes, man, you're doing a great job, brother. Keep going. Keep going. You're doing awesome. And if someone doesn't notice it, our feelings get hurt, right? What if no one ever notices? But God. Do you need recognition? Who are we serving? Are we serving God or are we serving man? Turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say, And again, we are the Lord's slaves. We are his servants, right? Now, I know he says, I've called you friend and all that stuff, but we are also his servants, right? We serve him. He is the master. We are the servants. And again, that's where we have to be careful. Yes, God is our friend. He is our brother and all that stuff. 
But there is still the fact that we are his servants while we are on this earth. We are here to do his will, just as Jesus, when he was on the earth, did the will of his Father. We are here to do his will and not our own. It says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? Will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? And so, and again, this is the problem in so many churches. So many religious leaders think that they're the Lord, and honestly, that Jesus is here to serve them, rather than the other way around. That Jesus serves them, that their people serve him, that everyone around them is here to serve them. That is not the way it is. They are here to serve first and foremost God and then the people. Verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Look what Jesus says. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, Say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Again, God has poured out so much grace, so much mercy on us. We were filthy, rotten, disgusting sinners who didn't deserve grace, who didn't deserve mercy, who did not deserve anything for him, from him. And he saved us and he washed us and he forgave us and he called us his own. He doesn't owe us. We owe him everything. We are to lay our bodies down as a living sacrifice for him. And that doesn't mean, oh, I lay my life down as a sacrifice. That means in everything that we do in our lives and the things that we do and the things that we don't do, this is a sacrifice for you, Lord. And the way that I serve the people around me, this is a sacrifice to you. I am just a slave. We are slave to God and we are slave to the people that he entrusts us to, right? Turn to one last place in Matthew chapter 6. We'll end with this. Matthew 6 verse 16. He says, whenever you fast, do not put, put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance. And, you know, you could be said whenever you do anything for God, right? Because sometimes we're doing things for the Lord and, oh, look at the price I'm paying to follow God. Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. Look at this. And your Father who sees whatever thing that you do, when he sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Look at this in the context, because we say this verse all the time, but he's saying in the context of not getting your own glory and not getting your your reward from men. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What is that in context? It's the people looking at you and going, oh, what a holy man this is. What a holy woman this is. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what is the treasure? He says it in, um, again, verse 18. He says, but your father who is in secret. He says, don't let your religious works be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Do you see that? So again, that is the ministry that God calls us to. The ministry that any single person that God has called to, called anyone to, is a ministry of servanthood. To lay down your life for the sheep, just like Peter, right? If you love me, serve my sheep. And to serve him. And anything else, anything else, if you're if you're getting if you're doing it to get glory from men, if you're doing it to use people for anything, for money, for fame, for acceptance, for whatever. If you're using ministry to get something from people, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And God wants you to repent. And I pray that if that's you, you will repent before it comes to the end. Again, with Ravi, we have no record, and there were people with him, of him ever repenting before the end. And again, I pray that if that's you, you will turn from that and you will lay your life down and you will recommit yourself to the Lord. Amen.